You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. And here's what's ahead today. A wild 24 hours. Bitcoin struggling to rebound from its worst day since February. We'll talk about why and where the selling is coming from. Plus, many see inflation as a transitory issue, one that might fade as stimulus money dries up. But former NEC director Larry Lindsay says inflation is here to stay and it could send rates much higher. We'll talk about that. And monkey see, monkey do. It's following the popularity of Clubhouse Facebook, maybe looking to launch its own social audio products. This is sort of social audio, right, Dom? social audio. We've got the details. We start with the markets, though, and Dom Chu is here with those numbers. Can I tell you just how good it is to have you back, socially distant or otherwise, (laughs) in the studio here? Welcome back, Kelly. It's good to have you here. Let's talk about the markets, because as you pointed out, we are in the red today. But we have pulled back from record highs for the Dow and the S&P 500. Even with today's losses, we are still just about less than a percent away from those record levels intraday that we saw just on Friday. The Nasdaq composite and technology in particular is moving things to the downside here. You can see that. They're down about one and a third percent, really the outper- underperformer, rather. The S&P was down five at the highs of the session and down 35 at the lows. So that gives you some context about the range so far. Speaking of that technology trade, the reversal is interesting because over the last month or so, we've seen another reversal of a reversal. Check this out. Technology is now the best performing sector in the S&P 500 over the last month. Meanwhile, the S&P is paced down by up 6%. Energy, the huge outperformer over the last month, is now severely underperformed. So you can see there a bit of a reversal of the reversal that we've seen over the last six months. See if you can remember that one. And then we're watching Bitcoin and all the crypto world right now because those big price swings that we saw this weekend predominantly to the downside, are carrying out in some of the stocks that are perhaps linked to that Bitcoin-type trade. Coinbase, yes, newly public, off 3%. But MicroStrategy, Square, and Riot Blockchain are three companies that all have Bitcoin as part of their balance sheet. They actually own those tokens. You can see those down severely in today's trade. So watch that Bitcoin ecosystem. It's having some real market reverberations in the equity side of things. Kelly, I'll send things back over to you. We are going to pick it up right there, Dom. Thank you. That's where we begin with Bitcoin and all of the crypto. Crypto spacing pretty massive swings over the past 24 hours from down 18 percent to flat negative once again right now. Bitcoin down to about 54,000 and change. Crypto is being seen by some as a risk gauge for the whole market. So let's talk about what's behind these particular sell offs. Joining me now are CNBC's Kate Rooney and CoinShares chief strategy officer Meltem Demirers. Welcome to you both. Meltem, we'll just start with you. Um, I mean, do we have to when a crypto is up, you know, as much as it has been the past couple months, 10 percent sell off is is pretty garden variety. Or what do you think? Is there something more going on here? Yeah, absolutely. And great to have you back as well. Um, You know, it's been a fun time in crypto land. Certainly what we saw last week was a classic momentum trade. Going into the Coinbase listing, we saw a lot of activity in options markets and futures markets. A lot of traders went levered long, leveraging crypto very expensive. Coinbase did not have the outing we hoped for. There wasn't enough volatility to drive prices higher. People took off leverage throughout Friday. And then on Saturday, night between a 20-minute period, we saw a massive deleveraging, hmm. over $7 billions in options liquidated uh, in a 20-minute period. So that obviously had an impact. But Sunday, we came right back with $80 billion of market volume in the Bitcoin space. Wow. So those dips are getting bought right back up. So Kate Rooney, of course, as you know better than anyone, only in crypto right now do you get these 20-minute intense sell-offs that have erased, what, $300 billion in crypto market cap or something. So what do you hear today as the dust settles? Are there people who say, awesome, now I can buy in at 54, but I still wish I could have gotten in at 19? 
Exactly. And great to see you, Kelly. Great to have you back. But yeah, only in crypto and only in crypto do you see that happen on a Saturday night into Sunday. So the the market never sleeps. It's opened on the weekends, of course. Uh, But that's what people are saying today. Meltem's exactly right. A lot of action in the derivatives market. That seems to have accelerated some of the losses there. But you are seeing a bit of a bottom. It's it's stabilizing, it looks like, around 55,000. Some might be coming in to see this as a buying opportunity. But one of the other data points that we saw from another blockchain firm, Glassnode, is that some of the wealthier buyers, so-called whales, were sort of stepping back at the same time as the retail buyers who were buying sort of smaller amounts, around $600 uh, ahead of the Coinbase listing. Retail buyers were getting in. Bigger investors were stepping back. So you saw this sort of shift um, ahead of Coinbase and a lot of excitement from the retail buyer there. True. Milton, the Bitcoin thing to me still makes a lot of sense because we've seen so many institutions getting in over the past three to six months. What about Dogecoin? I mean, this is like so there's there's two phenomena here, right? On the one hand, you have institutional interest driving up Bitcoin. On the other hand, you have this massive retail interest that seems to be, as they've realized, driving up everything from GameStop to Dogecoin, you name it. I mean, am I describing it correctly or are there more commonalities? (laughs) No, absolutely. Look, um, what we saw happen with Doge last week was pretty astounding. I think the catalyst there was the Wall Street Bets community. Ahead of the Coinbase listing, again, the Wall Street Bets moderators decided to, for the first time, allow talk about cryptocurrencies in that forum. (laughs) Only three coins, though, Bitcoin, Ether, and... Doge, of course. Then a day later, they reversed that decision because all the crypto folks went crazy in the forum. And so I think part of the response to that was retail retaliating. And really, you know, TikTok investors made a song about memeing Doge to $1. And I think we see that playing out in real time here. It's pretty amazing. We used to joke with my brother that if it got to a dollar, he could retire. And when I checked in with him, when it hit like 25 cents, he says, no, I got bored and I sold a lot of it a while ago. I go, what are what you got? But Kate, I mean, this is what stock traders have been dealing with for years. So tell us what the next hot coin is going to be. <laughs> That's so interesting. I think Dogecoin really captures kind of the zeitgeist of 2021 <laughs> and what is going on in the markets in terms of investing becoming entertainment. A lot of people know that it's a joke. They're not necessarily looking at this as their next big investment in terms of putting their retirement money there. I think there's a lot of interest in kind of getting on the momentum train. It's the exact same thing that we saw going on with GameStop, that people are on Reddit. They want to be a part of this. They see people like Elon Musk tweeting about it. It's hard to say, though, what is sort of the next big thing. It seems to be anything tied to a meme or tied to sort of this (laughs) momentum, fun, lighthearted action going on in trading. So it also gets back to sort of the Robin Hood argument of, Is it wrong to gamify stocks? It's really the way that some of these younger investors are getting introduced to the markets. And then you, of course, have the risk there. So you've got to got to be careful because clearly this has seen a huge run up. We don't know how it's going to end. Investing is entertainment, knowing it's a joke. You're so right. And it's still so, you know, when you when you think about it, as you hear it, it kind of blows your mind. Um, Meltem and Kate, thank you both. Very much appreciate it. Uh, We're going to stick with the pivot, sort of pivot here between what's going on in crypto and the rest of the market itself. Not a joke, but a lot of people are tying the action in one to the other, saying that what's happening in crypto is in some ways a risk gauge for what's going on with the whole market. Let's bring in Michael Santoli to talk a little bit more about whether that's true, Mike, and what's been going on with both this run to record highs and the pullback we're seeing. Yeah, Kelly, I know, you you know, you're back. You can rely on me to kind of. (laughs) 
get away from all the fun and frivolity and just get back to what's serious. But, uh, well, what is going on? I mean, there is sometimes in markets uh, the possibility of having too much of a very good thing. And in the short term, what that means is too many stocks, too persistently higher in a short period of time, and often means it doesn't take much to have some kind of a give back phase. So one thing that was getting a lot of attention last week is 95 percent plus of all stocks in the S&P 500 were above their 200 day average. Now, what that means is they're above this uptrend line. Usually that's a great thing. You want a rally to be broad. You want most stocks to participate in an advance. However, when it gets to this thin air up here above 95 percent, it has in the past coincided with when the market has stalled out or had a correction or gone sideways for a while, particularly if you want to look back to it around early 2010. A lot of parallels there, right? One year after a major market low, humongous rally, and people really did embrace it. Speaking of that embrace, uh, equity positioning among both small and large investors is also getting toward full levels, maybe uh, arguably some kind of extremes. And then finally, that 2010 example is also relevant in the sense that the economic data are getting better at such a fast pace. Hmm. And yet the market has kind of said, we know it. <laughs> and so maybe that, uh, you know, it has to be coinciding as well with a period when investors have to digest all this good news that we've had for a while. Mike, when is the time up on the whole kind of investing as entertainment trend? Because we all know it really came to a climax when there was no other entertainment, when yes. people had been shut inside with the pandemic and every, you know, everything else on Netflix they had seen already. I mean, we are getting closer to the reopening. That's supposed to be what's driving the, the rest of the market. So why is it that this is still getting so much traction? Well, you know, there's a decent case to be made that it peaked a couple of months ago, hmm. um, right? If you look at the, the, the ARC portfolios are still down 20 percent. SPACs are way off. Things like EV plays and solar stocks are all way off their highs. And so I do think that fever has broken to some degree. Um, now, obviously, you have these kind of revivals and you have Doge. I mean, it does seem as if uh, there's going to be this layer of investing as play or at least as a div diversion or a social activity for some time to come. But in terms of that crescendo of activity that was really animating the markets, I think February, you know, arguably might have been the peak. of. And you'd be the first to tell anybody investing as play has been going on for decades. I mean, there's nothing inherently new about that. It's much more similar to what Wall Street was at the beginning, which is very speculative and very much just like, who knows what, give me a tip, as opposed to, you know, discounted cash flow models. Right, before business school took all the fun yeah, out of it. Right. Um, Mike, thank you very no. much. Mike Santoli. Going to take a quick break. Coming up, millions of Americans are still without jobs, even as thousands of businesses can't find the workers they need. We're going to look at why this disconnect and which industries are most under pressure. Plus, a deadly new crash involving Tesla is raising fresh questions about autopilot. That story ahead right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back. Businesses are in full hiring mode now to meet a surge in demand as more people get vaccinated and states continue to lift restrictions. So why are so many companies struggling to find workers right now? Our Contessa Brewer has the details. Contessa. Hi, Kelly. Good to see you. Hey, look, in small towns and big cities across the nation, the signs are up in these windows. Help wanted. They're looking to hire electricians and plumbers and construction workers and nurses and home health aides. A whole host of people to staff casinos from housekeepers to servers at the pool. The Jolt survey shows job openings near record highs. 
Unemployment filings hit their lowest level last week since the pandemic and padded unemployment benefits from the federal government last through summer. So that's been a real problem for Ocean City, Maryland, which needs to hire 12,000 seasonal workers for tourism businesses. A third of those usually come from students with uh, who come from overseas with J-1 visas. The pandemic, though, is still a problem getting them here. Others may have child care issues here at home or maybe they even moved into other jobs. We definitely have people who have legitimate reasons why they can't come back into the employee force. But then there are also people who say, well, I think I'll just collect my unemployment because I don't want to work the extra hours and make this amount of money. They would rather be comfortable here. Ocean City businesses banded together. They sent a letter to the state labor department begging leaders to reinstitute the requirement that people receiving unemployment benefits have to look for work. It was allowed to lapse because of the pandemic emergency. So businesses are now also hiking wages. They're offering bonuses for those who stay on the job. And they're trying to even lure workers with same day pay. You work? You get paid that very same day. Kelly, they got to get creative. I've heard about signing bonuses in like the hospitality industry where you get $1,000 if you stay on for 90 days. It's a great report, Contessa. Thank you. Contessa Brewer, we're going to talk more about which industries are most affected by labor shortages and how they might be resolved. For that, we turn to Daniel Zhao. He's senior economist with Glassdoor. So, Daniel, I just mentioned hospitality. Contessa was focused on uh, those entertainment industries, if you want to call them that as well. Where else are we seeing this problem uh, pretty acute right now? Well, I think it's actually a mix of two types of industries. So industries like retail or food services, where you have a lot of in-person work, those are places where it's it's harder to find workers because of the ongoing pandemic. You also have other industries like transportation and warehousing, where a lot of those labor shortages are actually occurring before the pandemic. And they've actually gotten worse during the pandemic because those industries have seen a huge surge in demand from uh, trends like e-commerce. So what resolves this? I mean, Contessa referred to wage hikes. Um, Is that the only recourse? Well, I think it's interesting because wages and bonuses are kind of the first thing that comes to mind in an employer's toolkit. But there are also other tools that employers can turn to. So, for example, if employees are actually concerned about health and safety, then employers can offer either uh, uh, more flexibility in their options with, uh, with regard to working from home or coming into the workplace, or they can at the very least invest more in sa- health and safety standards and actually make that information available to their employees to make sure that those concerns are assuaged. So what could have been done to maybe make this round or version of unemployment benefits more friendly towards the reopening, if anything, in retrospect? Well, it's difficult to say. A lot of the unemployment benefit extensions have been kind of last minute and uh, are not things that can be turned around on a dime. And there have been some proposals to turn unemployment benefits into a reemployment bonus where workers don't actually lose out on any money if they do find a job. So that's an option moving forward. But at the same time, uh, I think I'm actually fairly optimistic that once the recovery gets or once a reopening, rather, gets uh, under underway and we actually have a full reopening, then we're going to see a lot more workers flood back into the labor force. Uh, and so some of these labor shortages might ultimately be fairly temporary. Sure. And when do the benefits run out now? Uh, I'm sure it depends, you know, on state to state and case by case. But generally speaking, is there a time frame? So some of it, uh, yeah, it does depend state by state. Some of it, uh, I think the longest it can go until is around Labor Day. 
Okay, so we're talking about the next couple of months, which could make the summer uh, especially problematic, like Contessa mentioned, for some industries looking for workers. I ask as well because there's more factors than just that which are going into this, obviously. Another Mm -hmm. interesting story I'd share is that there's companies who use workers, um, sort of an outsourcing um, kind of call center, you might say, in, in one state where now because of the pandemic, workers are realizing, well, they're not just stuck with whatever that state's wage rate is. They can actually get, you know, telecommute work at another state with a higher minimum wage. And so they're losing workers to higher paying jobs in other states. And these workers don't have to leave their house. You know, they don't have to move. And yeah. I, I wonder how we might expect that to play out maybe across the professional financial services space. Yeah, I think that one interesting thing about this pandemic is that it kind of forces both employers and employees to reevaluate their assumptions. We shouldn't assume that whatever the labor market was like before the pandemic will be the same now and will be the same after the pandemic is as well. So some industries or some regions that have traditionally had a very uh, tight labor market might end up with one that is more loose post-pandemic or and vice versa. So I think it's really important for employers and employees alike to kind of re-evaluate those assumptions and relearn how their local labor markets are actually functioning. And finally, just quickly to set up a discussion we're going to have in a moment, what would you say is going on in the wage space? I mean, is this a big acceleration and one you expect to last or not? Well, I think that some of it is ultimately temporary because I do expect that a lot of workers will come back into the labor force once the pandemic is more uh, closer to being actually over. But at the same time, wage growth has actually been a little bit stronger during the pandemic than we would expect during a traditional recovery. And I think this all of this just goes to highlight that, you know, the pandemic is both still going on. And it also means that the current crisis and the current recession are not a typical one. Everything is colored by the pandemic. No, it feels very very different, um, certainly from the financial crisis and, and many like that. Daniel, thanks very much. Daniel Zhao is with Glassdoor. Coming up, there are a lot of worries about the 10-year yield heading up to 2%, but my next guest says, forget two, we are going to 3%. Larry Lindsay joins us ahead. Plus, global consumers are now sitting on trillions of dollars of savings. The staggering numbers and what that means for the economy is ahead. Don't forget, you can watch us live on the go anytime using the CNBC app. We're back in a moment here on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a quick check on markets. Dow's down 164 points, about half a percent right now. So we're off the lows. We are down about 220. But still, we've been largely underwater uh, today. Not much variation even. Ten out of uh, the 11 sectors are in the red today. Consumer discretionary, technology and materials are your biggest laggards, as you can see there. And some of the individual movers, that's where it gets a bit more interesting. Apparel stocks are pulling back today. That's names like Tapestry, Under Armour, Ralph Lauren and L Brands. You can see not major moves, but Tapestry down about 3% right now. And this is after a strong start to the year that we should mention. L Brands, it's up 78%. Since Jan 1. Let's also take a look at the SMH. It's the semiconductor ETF. Again, another bellwether often for the market. It's down right now nearly 3%. And that's led by declines in Micron, LAM Research, and Cadence Design Systems. You can see LAM and Cadence are down closer to 5% right now. Going the other way are shares of Harley Davidson today. They had a big earnings beat. They're sharply higher by about 11% right now. Uh, the company raising its full year guidance for motorcycle revenue and profit margins. And as stock picking gets tougher, some names that move on company news offer the best opportunity for investors with high risk appetite. That's according to Goldman Sachs. You can head over to cnbc.com slash pro for some more top stock picks. Let's get to Rahel Solomon now for our CNBC News update this hour. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Kelly, and welcome back. Good to have you in the building. The Treasury Department is announcing a new focus on climate policy. A senior official is being appointed to 
head the effort through a newly formed climate hub that will support green finance and use tax policy to help reduce carbon emissions. Florida is cracking down on violent protests. This morning, Governor Ron DeSantis signed the legislation nicknamed the Anti-Riot Bill. New rules raise penalties and also make it harder to cut funding for law enforcement. Your Governor Andrew Cuomo raising capacity limits for museums, movie theaters and large indoor arenas. The higher caps go into effect next Monday. And you can see how reopenings are happening across the country despite increases in new cases in some areas. Tonight on the News with Shepard Smith. And for the first time in 18 years, the Cincinnati Bengals are getting a new look. The home black jerseys have three stripes on each shoulder. There are also alternate white and orange jerseys. The tiger stripe helmets remain. So, Kelly, I think the consensus is that the newer uniforms are cleaner, more streamlined, more simple. What's the big deal? The NBA has a new uniform every game. I know, but it's been it's been so long for the Cincinnati Bengals, so I think people there are excited to see something different. Well, God bless them. Uh, yeah. Rahel, thank you. Sure. All of the money folks have squirreled away amid the pandemic is adding up to a mountain of savings. Since the pandemic began, people around the world, here's your number of the day. They've stockpiled $5.4 trillion in excess savings. U.S. households alone are sitting on more than $2 trillion of that. At the same time, it looks like consumers are getting more optimistic than ever. The conference board's Global Consumer Confidence Index just hit its highest level on record in the first quarter of this year. Moody's estimates if people spent even a third of excess savings right now, that activity would boost global output or GDP by just over two percentage points this year and next year. One caveat to these pandemic savings, the money has been largely accumulated by wealthier households. Goldman's chief economist, Ian Hotzius, warning that this could mute the scale of future spending because high-income households hold the bulk of it and may not be a spendthrift. Coming up, it's game on for GameStop shares. The audio wars heat up. Will a SPAC work for WeWork and Peloton's potential safety problem? It's all ahead in rapid fire. But first, it's time for show and tell. We show the chart, then tell the story. Today's chart is Coke. Slightly higher higher following a beat on the top and bottom lines with March volumes back to 2019 levels. But the company kept guidance unchanged. And CEO James Quincy says they're not out of the woods just yet. This week uh, marks a a new global high in terms of total global cases. And we're seeing other countries uh, go back into lockdown. So this factor of the degree of lockdown in the rest of the year is a very uh, telling factor as we adapt the business uh, and will will either help us or hinder us as we go into the downhill. So one can't draw a straight line through the momentum we've built over the last 12 months without taking this into account. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar right now. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines, Julia Borson, Dominic Chu, and Molly Wood join us. Molly's the host and senior editor of Marketplace Tech. And we've got some news this hour. Uh, first up, shares of GameStop are surging today after CEO George Sherman announced he'll step down effective July 31st or sooner. If a successor is found before then, the company is seeking a new leader to help its pivot to e-commerce after the Reddit-fueled short squeeze that sent shares skyrocketing earlier this year. Now, GameStop is still well off those record highs. It was up at 483 in January. Still, it's up about 6% today, and it's up ninefold year-to-date. Dominic Chu, the CEO, leaving. What happens now? So what happens now is this 
is the next incremental step in their transformation into this e-commerce kind of online-only focused company that Ryan Cohen, the, the founder of Chewy.com, is trying to transform themselves into. Now, he's a board member, but he's been tasked with kind of the strategic initiatives within GameStop to make it more like the, uh, the online presence and powerhouse that could command a kind of valuation that we're seeing right now. What's curious to me is the people who have kind of made this a meme stock over the past several months here are some of the ones maybe they're con- kind of committing a little bit more to it. We know that Roaring Kitty, right, <laughs> one of the folks out there, one of the, the, the big Reddit traders out there, instead of taking profits on his option position to own more shares, he actually exercised them and took a bigger stake in the company. So in this case, I, I think this is one of those situations where this has become a story stock rather than anything else. And it'll be curious to see whether or not people say, hey, yes, you know, what? I buy the story. This is a long-term turnaround trade, if you will. And Molly, what would you say? I mean, what's most important for investors to ponder as they consider the changes that they're making, they're announcing today and that are going to come in the weeks ahead? I mean, what I find fascinating about this is that there's an argument to be made that Roaring Kitty is actually running this company right Mm -hmm. now. He is driving this bus. You're seeing all of this executive turnover in the response of, you know, in the wake of, frankly, a company that has failed to capitalize so far on winning the lottery. And so if he is driving them toward a strategy that might be successful in the long term, I find that to be a fascinating power play, but also a really interesting development, like you said, Donna's story. Julia, final word on this. Well, look, I think it's really interesting that they did see 175% growth in e-commerce sales in the most recent quarter, but it still only accounts, e-commerce only accounts for about a third of sales. So they have a lot more room to go there. I think it's all about hiring a CEO who has real expertise in e-commerce to show that that's really where the company is committed to going. I said lastly, but Molly, real quickly, I mean, who who would be a good CEO candidate? I saw in Tech Check earlier that people have floated the likes of John Ledger and others. I mean, anyone to you kind of come to mind as having the right personality to be able to handle this assignment? I mean, you do have to put yourself into a power struggle with Roaring Kitty, so it's going to have to be a personality. But yeah, I mean, there are companies that have successfully made that transition even recently. I'd be looking to Walmart. I'd be looking to Target. I'd be looking to somebody who really did Walmart? reinvent Molly, the business. Walmart? At GameStop? <laughs> I don't know. Walmart's come out of nowhere. You can't discount them. That's Stranger true. things have They're happened, as old Kelly. a name as GameStop. Yeah. Stranger things have happened. <laughs> I still can't get over Roaring Kitty's link back to Dystap, but that, anyone in the running community you know, of my age would know exactly what we're talking about. Uh, somehow Keith Gill shows up everywhere. All right, let's talk about these big announcements we just got out of Facebook. A suite of new audio products from conferencing to podcast sharing to live audio rooms. Yes, just like Clubhouse. And a conversation going on right now on Discord, ironically, CEO Mark Zuckerberg is saying that the big picture is to treat audio like a first a medium-like photo and video, and it comes as one of its biggest rivals in the audio space, yes, Clubhouse, now reportedly valued at $4 billion after its latest funding. So, Julie, these headlines are coming across right now. Um, what is, we've seen the, this company copy very well in the case of Instagram stories, and also not as well. What do you think is important here? Well, what's really interesting, Kelly, and I have to say this uh, call is happening right now on Discord. This interview is happening. I was just listening to it until moments ago. And what Zuckerberg is saying is they want their strength in all of these different tools, whether it's groups or whether it's reels or whether it's, you know, audio uh, video calling. They want to really extend that into the audio space. They do see audio as a first class medium. So a couple of key announcements here, you know, reels, the short form video clips, they want to do that. But for audio, they want to be able to deliver you a bunch of them so you can watch a bunch at once. He mentioned they're going to have a podcast sharing tool 
which is interesting, showing they want to be a place where you could find and, and identify podcasts or share podcasts with your friends. Also, live rooms, just like Clubhouse um, and just like what we are listening to right now on Discord. And then also offering more tools for the creator economy, Kelly. He really sees this as a way to, um, to get creators to want to spend time on their platform and share on Facebook's platforms. But as you look to the future, Kelly, it's a lot easier to create audio content than video and a lot easier to consume it when you're multitasking. So I think that's why Zuckerberg is really so focused on And Dom, uh, I haven't really found any clubhouse rooms I've found interesting yet, but someone the other day mentioned a fascinating concept, which is we all know about these live chat apps that are on throughout the workday. And they said, why couldn't you basically have a live let's call it conference call, an audio room, whatever you want, amongst your far-flung employees that actually captures that. What are we all doing in the newsroom? I'm not looking at you. I'm just shouting over at you. I mean, why couldn't... I can understand the the power of harnessing some of that. I mean, that's what all these productivity tools were meant to do, right? I mean, I'm talking about big-name companies like Microsoft with their Teams product or Slack with their Workplace product. I mean, all of these things are ways to get people to collaborate and kind of work together and listen and, and try to figure out ways to communicate even better. I would say this, the interesting part about the reason why this story resonated with me was I'm not sure, and it kind of struck this chord with me, I'm not sure how much of the success of a company like Clubhouse is due to this anti-establishment feel that a lot of users have, right? Because Facebook is now, believe it or not, the establishment within big technology. And that's the reason why so many people are gravitating away from platforms like that. What they did with Instagram was almost another era at this point here Mm -hmm. from what's happening with Clubhouse. And so with Clubhouse, this could be a big deal. But yes, I mean, Kelly, we could still shout to each other right now now that you're back in the office. (laughs) I'm not sure exactly what it does if you kind of put it in a platform in social audio. Right. Molly, what would you say to that? I think everybody is looking for the next sort of version of engagement and what that means. And and social audio is really popular right now. I would argue that it's going to be hard to sustain momentum for live audio in that way at scale. Small groups like to do it. My kid likes to do it with his friends when he's playing video games. But I don't know that it's you know, it will eventually transition into on-demand content. And then that will have the same problems that all on-demand content has, which is discovery and the fact that not everybody is equally talented. Well, and for Facebook, it seems to say it doesn't really cost us much. It opens up the opportunity for us to grow with this pretty quickly and just kind of see where it goes. Uh, Let's talk about WeWork, which is looking to go public again. The firm is now expected to merge with the SPAC BOX acquisition, acquisition Group, that's ticker B-O-W-X. Now, that merger would take place later this year. And according to its latest investor pitch, they now present a massive growth opportunity with more than 800 locations in the real estate portfolio. But there's a catch, one of many. Regulators have questioned WeWork's profit and growth, measuring benchmarks ahead of its failed 2019 IPO. And legal experts are saying the latest figures echo some of these same projections. So, Molly, is this really important new information or just a reminder that this may be kind of the the old dog in new clothing, so to speak? I mean, it's hard. You know, I, I have to be honest, I wouldn't trust WeWork at this point if they told me the sky was blue, let alone their business projections, even though I can see a universe where actually shared office space is really appealing after the pandemic. If companies sell corporate headquarters and workers have moved away from hubs or they want to split time between home and a place that's less distracting. So there's a universe where some projections could make sense, but a company that's already had so much inflation of its own goals and then is sort of trying to do the same thing, but with less scrutiny, I think you have to have an even higher 
bar of skepticism than you would otherwise have, which is already high where we work as concerned. And Julia, what do, what do you think is their best pitch to the investing public right now uh, as we think about, OK, well, at least the pandemic will have receded. You can understand the attractiveness of that kind of remote on and off uh, workspace, maybe now even more so in the post-pandemic future. Yeah, I think that's that, that's really the question, whether people are going to want to get out of their houses. I think there is an assumption that there is just going to be more hybrid work. Hybrid meaning sometime in the office, sometime not in the office. And maybe some people are going to have that time not in the office, be at home. And also, if companies are giving up those big headquarters, as Molly just mentioned, are they going to be turning to WeWork to have a home base where companies can meet up, uh, their employees can meet up with each other without having to go into a big uh, corporate office? But I think we're start, we're talking a lot about the dispersion of employees across the country away from big corporate hubs. But we'll see if that really lasts, say, a year from now. Um, absolutely. Uh, and finally, we want to mention the Peloton. Does anybody here have this treadmill? Show of hands? No. Dom, do you have a Peloton? We do have a Peloton, yes. Okay, so they're pushing back on this warning by the Consumer Product Safety Commission that's urging people with children or pets at home not to stop using the bike, but to stop using the Tread Plus treadmills. The agency says it knows of nearly 40 reports of children and pets being injured by them. And this comes a month after Peloton disclosed an accident that resulted in the death of a child. The CEO said in a statement that the treadmill should not be used around children or pets, but the company has no plans to recall them. Their shares more than quadrupled amid the pandemic last year, but they're down about 30 percent so far this year. So, Dom, is this treadmill problem unique to Peloton or is it just more visible with Peloton? It's probably it's neither. I don't think it's unique to Peloton. I don't think it's also I mean, this is a scenario where products maybe are not being used the right way. But but the curious part to me about it is the the way that this whole PR story is shaking out. Peloton pushing back. Nobody's taking a definitive stand that this needs to happen. You know, the Consumer Product Safety Commission is is kind of working reportedly with Peloton and crafting the language around warning customers about it. But it comes down to this. I mean, you mentioned that 30 some percent drop from the highs that we saw in a record fashion, right, because of the pandemic driven demand for these products. I looked at two analyst notes this morning, both of which said that any kind of dip in Peloton is a dip worth buying and that nothing with this Tread Plus product kind of situation affects the long term demand or growth trajectory for Peloton. So if there is a pullback here, yes, the stock is going lower on this. But you have a feeling like there's it's still a darling of my analysts. And by the way, J.P. Morgan still calls it a best idea. Julie, I mean, what do you think is really going on here with the treadmills then? Well, look, I, I can't speak to these treadmills. Obviously, it's a horrific story and, and a terrifying video, which I've not seen myself, but just a, a terrifying situation there. I think the question really is, is this different from other treadmills? Is this a, a question of, you know, consumers making mistakes um, in, in terms of the way they're allowing their children or pets to be exposed to these treadmills? It's a very complicated situation. In terms of the stock, I think that's really a question of whether the pandemic is going to represent a sea change in terms of the way people exercise. Mm -hmm. Does this mean that people are just going to always skip the gym and stay at home and then spend the monthly fee that Peloton charges? Um, Or are people going to be eager to to get back to the gym and be less interested in continuing to buy these these bikes and treads? Absolutely. I know. I'm kind of skeptical that they're going to want to stay at home. They don't have to, but we'll see. Uh, Dom will keep using his. Julia, Dom and Molly Wood, thank you all very much for joining me today. That does it for this edition of Rapid Fire. Up next, former NEC director Larry Lindsay joins me in a first on CNBC interview. What's got him so concerned about stocks and why there could be another round of stimulus checks next year? We're back in a couple.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks have soared to record levels after the Fed said inflation is temporary and it'll do everything it can to support the economy. But what if the Fed is wrong? And what if higher prices are here to stay? Joining me now with more on that is Larry Lindsay. He is president and CEO of the Lindsay Group. He was former director of the National Economic Council and former governor of the Federal Reserve Board. Larry, it's great to see you again. And you've been very consistent. Welcome back. Thank you on this message about how you, you say you, you don't think these inflation pressures will prove passing. Can you explain why? I mean, this ties so many different variables together. It means you don't think people are coming back in from the labor force and, you know, so much more with the producer pricing that we've seen could be sticky. Why is that? Why won't this all just go away in six or 12 or 18 months time? Well, we are in a situation where we're going to we're likely to have continued fiscal stimulus. Um, it's quite unlikely that in an election year, Uh, the Congress is going to let their constituents have less money next year than they had in 2021. So I think the demand side of the economy is going to continue quite strong. Our constraint is on the supply side of the economy. Uh, You know, we're hearing about bottlenecks everywhere in the supply chain, going all the way back to the very start of the supply chain. The biggest problem every uh, employer has is finding qualified workers. Um, there are stories out that, you know, restaurants that are now able to reopen can't because they don't have the labor supply. So the economy is supply constrained. And if you combine rapid demand growth and limited supply growth, the outcome is inflation. So in other words, what you're saying is that we've seen a permanent change on the supply side of the economy. Why is it permanent? You know, a lot of this does seem to go back to how big the labor force is. And you've made this point that the dropouts of the labor force, we've seen the shutdowns, uh, the people who are leaving who may not come back could have a multi-generational impact that widens inequality in this country. It's the last thing that anybody wants to see happen. So is there still time to fix that situation? Isn't that what stimulus checks are trying to fix? And why don't you think it's going to work? Well, um, Two things have happened. Uh, The first is that, frankly, a lot of jobs have become a lot less attractive and are likely to stay that way. You know, interacting with lots and lots of strangers every day, you know, is certainly riskier than it's been. And even when we're all vaccinated, the lingering effects of what's just happened are going to continue. We're still going to have spikes. We're still going to have uh, variants of the virus, mutations come along. So I think there's a change in the attitude toward work. Uh, The stimulus checks, the higher unemployment, um, while I understand the motivation for them, uh, if they're continued on a long-term basis, will actually make that problem worse. Hmm. People who know they have another source of income aren't going to rush back into their old jobs. Let's talk about bond yields in the stock market then, where a lot of our viewers are wondering which way they should bet. And, you know, you could say, okay, well, if, even if the 10-year goes to 2 or 3%, maybe that's no disaster except for certain parts of the market. Um, how much risk is there in stocks, and what level do you think is uh, realistic for us to reach on bonds? Well, how much risk there is in stocks, no one actually knows. We'll find out. Uh, we've been feeding the equity market with tons of liquidity now for more than a decade. So, you know, we'll, we'll have to find out. The question is, will that ever stop? Now, if you look at the bond yield and you say, gee, the economy is likely to hit full employment, say in 15 months, 18 months, um, 
we're growing rapidly. Uh, inflation is creeping up. That's you know an inescapable fact. Um, the bond yield by year end under those circumstances would have to be at least three percent to be anything like what normal should be. And given what's happening in the economy, you've got to have a a small positive uh, bond yield once you hit full employment. Um, we're now at 60 bips negative. Hmm. We're likely to have some acceleration of inflation, and we're going to have to get that real yield up as well. It's very hard to imagine that 3% is going to be the stopping point for the 10-year bond. So the final place, I, I'm curious what you would say to viewers who are wondering what's going to happen with the budget deficit and the debt situation. I mean, I think by now we know there is no magic level that the debt reaches and all of a sudden becomes a problem. But we also don't know at what point it will become a problem or what's going to happen if it does. You know, these things are, are baked in and, and spending is so hard to decrease. And obviously, even efforts to increase revenues are, are also facing kind of a tough slog. So I mean, what, what do we watch for? Um, do we just wait for the problem to present itself and then slam on the brakes? I, I mean, that's kind of the one argument is that we've always pulled back too quickly. Well, what we're likely to do, not what we should do, is we're going to wait until it's too late and then slam on the brakes. And we don't know when that's going to be. It's not going to be anytime soon. It'll be later this decade. But Kelly, let's do some simple math. We're going to have a 19% of GDP budget deficit this year. We're going to have to finance housing to the tune of another 4% of GDP. Total net private savings in America is roughly 7 to 8% of GDP. That's a huge gap between 23 and 8. Uh, the kindness of strangers, i.e. foreigners, certainly can't be relied upon to cover that, those bond yields are going to have to, those bonds are going to have to be largely purchased by the Fed. Hmm. That's going to fuel, that's going to provide the fuel, certainly, to validate inflation and inflation expectations. And if this were a one-year phenomenon, okay, it would be temporary. But again, I assure you, the incumbents are not going to take the risk of seeing their constituents be worse off next year than they were this year. Right, that's a great sort of a political economy speed limit. Yeah. The deficit, 2% of GDP a year, that's it. Wow. Well, and that's why people say buy Dogecoin and prepare for the apocalypse, I guess. How do you joke about these things? But anyway, Larry, I appreciate it very much. Always able to lay out the big picture for us. Larry Lindsay with the Lindsay Group. Still ahead, shares of Tesla are lower today after a deadly crash in Texas that's invigorating questions about its technology. What it means for the stock, for Elon Musk, and for regulators, we'll dig into right after this. Welcome back. Authorities in Texas are investigating a Tesla crash that left two men dead. Police say they don't believe that anybody was in the driver's seat during the crash. That's reigniting the debate over Elon Musk's autopilot language. Tesla shares are down almost 4% today. And Phil Abo is here with the latest this hour. Phil? Kelly, a couple of things to keep in mind as you take a look at the crash scene. This was a fiery crash over the weekend. The two 
occupants of this vehicle. Let me set the stage in terms of what happened here. The two people who were killed, one was found in the passenger seat, the other one was found in the back seat. And that's led police to say, police at the scene to say, they do not believe that anybody was in the driver's seat. The big question is, was autopilot engaged? The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration now launching an investigation into this crash, issuing a statement today saying NHTSA has immediately launched a special crash crash investigation team to investigate the crash. We are actively engaged with local law enforcement and Tesla to learn more about the details of the crash and will take appropriate steps when we have more information. Just a refresher course on Tesla's autopilot technology. It is not full self-driving technology. Regardless of what you hear from people, regardless of how positive Elon Musk may be about the fact that you may not really have to be uh, driving in the future with your hands on the steering wheel, you still need to be engaged. And Tesla tells all owners of all vehicles that that is the case. Nonetheless, as you take a look at shares of Tesla, keep in mind that as the company has been developing new versions of autopilot, they've been testing these beta versions with real drivers, people who have Teslas. And as they are doing that, the criticism, Kelly, has been from some people, including the head of the NTSB, that you shouldn't have regular citizens testing out beta versions of the autopilot software, that it should only be crash drivers until you feel comfortable enough to release that software. So this is a a story that we're going to see play out over the weeks and months to come, Kelly, whether or not NHTSA actually does something or if they investigate this crash and then we don't really hear anything more because they've investigated more than two dozen. Yeah, and we know that a lot of Tesla investors are excited about the potential for full self-driving when it comes, and this obviously represents... uh, a risk around that story. Phil, thank you for now. We'll continue to follow it. That's our Phil LeBeau. And that does it for The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.